Hi, and welcome to the Unfiltered podcast with me, Emma Saunders. Join me on a journey to go behind the facade of the ever-present, false and glossy portrayal of the perfect life. Hello, and welcome to the Unfiltered podcast. Today, I'm here with my good friend, Ollie. Good afternoon. Talking about my awful experience with benzodiazepine withdrawal and the general pharmaceutical industry and beyond. And we talked to Emma about her experiences in um, having been sectioned not only here but in Spain, her addiction to various different um, drugs and how she's um, currently tapering off them. Yes. And also I'm joined with Wicket, my dog, who you might hear snoring throughout. Oh, okay. Here he is. (laughs) Thanks very much and uh, enjoy the episode. So, Emma, obviously you and I have known each other some years now and you wanted to do this today for what reason? I wanted to do it because it's something that no one believes happens ever. And it's been incredibly... um, It's been incredibly difficult because in order to for me to get the right help um because it's not recognized and because doctors themselves don't know about it for some strange reason um i didn't get the right help and like many they don't get the right help um and we were saying this before we started i can't believe this happens in the 21st century you know this isn't dickensian london where they've been given some crazy medicine this is something that you've been this has happened in the last and it's still happening now am i right yeah i mean because the doctors don't give you the right advice people often turn to like facebook groups and self help groups and there's this website called surviving antidepressants um beating benzos there's there's just there's so many different groups and people will go there and say how do I taper off this I'm having all these symptoms and side effects my doctor's telling me that it's me and that I'm going crazy um so yeah take us back to the beginning completely at the start of how this began and why you started taking these things so I it was the pandemic I'd actually had a nice lockdown so this is what, 2020, mid-2020? 2020? Yeah. Well, that's when it started, April 2020. Feels like a black hole. It is a black hole. <laughs> yeah. It is. Um, so it was the third, it was the final lockdown. We were just about to go into it. It was my birthday. And for some reason, I just developed really loud ringing in my ears. Um, and yeah, the, the, actually the, the morning after my birthday, I just woke up with this really loud ringing. And because it was COVID and everything, I decided to go to my dad's private doctor Dr. And he basically said, you know what, you just, 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 you need some sleep, just take this pill and get some good sleep and the ringing will probably stop. Whereas, and, yeah. and, and had you not been sleeping because of this? So you would had this tinnitus in your ears? So it'd been about three days and I just, I was struggling to sleep. I was sleeping, but it was broken. And I actually wanted to go to him to try and get like an ENT you know, like a ear, nose and throat doctor. I didn't know any good ones. So I was like, oh, if I go to, maybe he can refer me. So that's what I was hoping for. But instead he he kind of treated it very casually and was like, this is fine. You just need to sleep. And yeah, just keep taking this pill. And that's what I did. 
And what sort of strength were the pills that you were taking? So it was one milligram of lorazepam. He didn't actually tell me what it was. Uh, he just said it would it would help me sleep. It was safe, uh, totally safe to take. I should take it until the lockdown's over, which ended up being about six months. And he said, just take that every night because what we don't want to happen is for you to, to spiral, um, for your sleep to deteriorate and because of the tinnitus. And so that's what I did. I took one milligram every night yeah, and I, yeah, uh, and and I became unwell. I started to become very unwell on the drug, but I didn't H how know. How quickly? And what sort of symptoms were you experiencing? So um, it was a month. It was a month in and the symptoms. So before this, I'd never actually experienced like really bad anxiety. I never had a panic attack before in my whole life, luckily. Um, and all of a sudden I was just starting to get this like what they call chemical terror. So I would wake up at like 5 a.m. with this chemical terror just like seething through my body. And I just couldn't work it out. I thought it was me. I thought I was like losing my mind. And this got stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where I was having this continuous feeling of terror just throughout the day. Was it something specifically you were scared of or was it just the symptoms of that, like the feeling of that? Yeah, so it was like somebody had flicked a switch and it was like, oh, I'm now feeling constant terror for literally no reason. You know, I was fine. <laughs> um, so that was really weird. It was like, like my whole entire state of being had been altered and I couldn't function. I mean, who can function if they're in like a state of terror? And it meant that I was literally terrified of everything, like everyone going, going outside, doing anything. I just had this constant, I guess I would liken the feeling if you were about to jump off a cliff and you were like actually terrified. It was that feeling and it was so intense. And you didn't get any sleep during this or were, you, were there times of rest or was it a continuous thing? So it was like, yeah, I'd been taking the pill for about a month and my sleep started to get worse. So I, I started to wake up at 5 a.m. Then it was 4 a.m., 3 a.m. And it was like the pill had sort of stopped working, uh, as it were. And this can happen to like anyone it can happen within like a couple of weeks to a few years just depends on your like makeup so for me it, it happened very very quickly and it just meant that you know it was meant for sleep but actually it was making me making it very difficult to sleep mm -hmm. it sort of stopped I didn't even know that mechanism in your brain where you just kind of like sleep it was like it it reversed and I'd gone into like overdrive and I was like frantic the whole time just like this so was this, had, did you sus suspect that this was the drug that you were taking or did you think it was something else? So at the, at the time, it was very difficult because I was in lockdown with my dad. At this point, I'd gone over to Spain to be with him for the third and final lockdown. <gasps> As I'm sure everyone, you know, it was a lot. I was sharing with people and I was like, I just want to get away. So I was with my dad in isolation and it was just... I, it was so confusing. I was like, am I losing my mind? Is is it me? And because the doctor, I asked him, I said, look, my thoughts are going a thousand miles per hour. I can't sleep. I've got this crazy anxiety. And he was like, oh no, no, it can't be the pill. It's completely safe. Um, and I started, I started to look up the pill online and I said, it says it's addictive. It says it's only meant for crisis situations. 
uh, at, at most two weeks, you know, to take this drug. And he was like, oh no, don't read Google. Um, you know, it's, there's loads of crap on there. Was this in England? Because you say you were in Spain. Was this doctor in England or was this in Spain? So this doctor was, who's in London. Mm -hmm. And I ended up having to go to a doctor in Spain because of what was going on. Obviously, I couldn't go back to... But he was still advising me because he was the one prescribing me the drug. Why do you think... Because this is quite widespread, like you say. This has happened to a lot of people. Why do you think he didn't... He either ignored the symptoms or or lied about the symptoms because it's blatantly obvious that this is what's happened. So, <clears throat> yes, <laughs> this is a good question because I think this is what's so shocking. And it was very difficult for my friends and my family to really believe what was going on because the doctor was like, oh, no, it's fine. This, this doesn't happen. And I just think he's quite a bit older He's in his I, I, maybe 70s. He's been around for a long time. Maybe he's he's quite old fashioned um, to, to be giving this very strong drug out like is not common practice in the in this modern world. My NHS doctor or any NHS doctor that I came across was shocked. They were like, how why have you been taking this? Why are you taking this drug? Um, so it's really mal. It's just negligence, basically. I don't understand what common sense, I mean, as a doctor, what he was thinking to be giving a young female such a strong, addictive, dangerous drug. Um, and have you spoken to him since since this has all happened? Uh, so basically, I ended up emailing him a lot about because I was having all these symptoms I couldn't understand what was going on the Spanish doctor was useless in Spain so and at this point I still trusted him you know I was like he's a private doctor he should know what he's talking about and so we had a lot of back and forth a lot of me asking about this drug a lot you know are you sure it's not the drug and so yeah all he did was tell me to take beta blockers um which certainly at this point did not help. Um, what was that designed to do? What do they do? So they're, they're designed to kind of calm your heart rate. Um, you know, if you're about to do like a big speech or something to sort of calm you down. But again, you know, I didn't know at this point, but I was in benzodiazepine withdrawal. There is no cure for this withdrawal. So nothing was touching the surface on this like chemical terror. And... Now, what happened with Guy is eventually he just kind of started to ignore my emails and I haven't spoken to him since. So you were addicted at this point, you think? Yes. So with it's it's kind of confusing for people with the addiction thing because they're like, oh, she's taking this drug because she needs it, like like heroin or something. But actually it's your body becomes completely dependent on the drug to function. So that's what they mean by your body becomes like addicted to it. It needs it. And so this can happen again within 10 days of taking the drug continuously or it can happen, I mean, it, it's different for everyone, like within a month, within two months, but this drug is not meant for long term. It's It really is like a crisis drug, like, um, you know, if you're having a seizure or if you're having an incredibly intense panic attack or something like that, you would take it once. Um, it really is for like an emergency. So because I've been taking it for six months every day, um, 
that my body had become completely addicted and completely dependent on it. So what happened was I decided to taper off the drug. However, <laughs> told me to basically stop taking it in two weeks. So that's what I did. And I didn't know that actually I should have tapered it for about six months to a year. And what happened was I was then, I was already unwell, but then I was already, yeah, I was already unwell, but then I was hit with benzo, like the full whack of benzo withdrawal, which then obviously sent me into all kinds of crazy places. And this, did you, is this when you were tapering off the drug or is this when you, you'd stopped your teetotal, you'd stopped it? Yeah, so basically was like you can stop taking that in two weeks so that's what I did I just stopped taking it I kind of halved the pill halved it again and I was off and it was about a week until I was hit with like a wall of I mean I don't even know it was indescribable the feelings of my body it actually felt like I came out of my body I mean I don't know for people who have had a panic attack they'll kind of relate to that it's like you feel like you've come out of your body and I completely detached from myself. And I just was in this constant state of like terror 24 uh, seven and the ability to sleep completely stopped. So from that point onwards, I didn't sleep and I probably didn't sleep. I, I work it out for maybe about eight months, all in all. You didn't sleep, you slept for 20 minutes at a time or just so small nothing, little naps? Nothing, zero. So in eight months, you didn't, surely that would have killed you. So this is, this is the exact thing. So basically I did almost die. And, and actually I feel like it's a miracle that I'm here because it got to the point where I hadn't slept for eight months. I was pacing around my mum's living room at this point because I'd come back to London. No one knew what to do in Spain. And I had this thing called akathasia. And akathasia is basically something that is created by pharmaceutical drugs, something that isn't spoken about, but it's actually very common. And it's when your thoughts are very th fast, but also your physical movement and you cannot stop moving. It's, I liken it to like giving a rat poison and it's like squirming on the floor. That's kind of what you look like with akathasia. And I, so I had this, I was pacing, pacing, pacing. I was in a psychosis, obviously, because I hadn't slept in so long. I was down to about five stone and I hadn't, I had stopped eating. And I mean, doctors would come round my mum's house continuously observing this and just not knowing what to do. And in the end, they had to get the ambulance round and I was so terrified, I refused to like move. I mean, I do actually remember, I remember it all happening, even though I was in this like incredibly altered state. And the, the police then had to come and get me because I refused to leave the house. And therefore I was then sectioned because the behavior was so wild. And obviously they were like, she's gonna die literally any minute without, you know, she needs to be like rehydrated. We need to give her, try and get some food in her. Um, it was really severe. And I remember the, um, the mental health nurse saying, I've never seen like this in all my 10 years of, of practice. Like this is, yeah, some, somebody so unwell. Was this the point where you and I had a conversation on the phone, which you don't really remember, yeah. am I right? So You didn't know that when I spoke to you months later, you didn't remember having had this conversation. So I remember calling a lot of my friends and 
I my brain went to God and it went to the devil and it was, I think it was trying to make sense of what was going on and I was re- I was hallucinating. I think when you don't sleep for that long, I mean, who knows what happens to you, but I, I started to think that I was dead. I wasn't alive anymore and I went into a different reality and the things I was experiencing through my body were just insane. And I guess it's part of the psychosis. Like you, you feel pain, um, sensations, you have hallucinations. And so I, I thought that maybe I was dead and I'd gone to hell and I was calling up people and asking them about God. And I actually can't remember what I, what I said to you. I believe you said, do you believe there's a God? Do you believe in the devil right now? You were very, very spaced out. You introduced me to your mom and your sister over the phone. Wow. Um, they were obviously a bit more familiar with what was happening. Yeah. And then you were just like, I've got to go, Ollie, bye. And then just hung up. Um, when you talk about the psychosis and this this state that you were in, were, were there any parts of your life that remained normal or any times you felt normal or you could relate to day-to-day activities? So yes, so no, absolutely not. And it was crazy when I think back to what went on in my brain. But since I've spoken to, you know, psychiatrists and doctors and they said, well, if you if you don't sleep and also because I've been given such a cocktail of drugs, because what ended up happening is when I stopped the lorazepam or the Ativan, I was I was then in this benzo withdrawal and I ended up in Spain being sectioned by my dad because he was like things got very dark um just just for the timeline at what point did that happen was that after the first time you were sectioned so and how long were you what happened when you were sectioned and then how long were you there for so basically it was when i stopped the drug week later hit by benzo withdrawal nobody knows what's going on nobody believes me even though a psychiatrist that we spoke to at the time said she's in withdrawal from the benzodiazepine there is no cure but for some reason my dad just went into this different realm where he just thought it can't be the pill you know it it must be her and and so things got quite dark because he sort of shut off to me and I was in Spain at this point and I was having this thing called suicidal ideation, which now I know what it is. The the drug basically makes you think of death, but like constantly. And it makes you think of like suicide and killing yourself. And it's, it's really dark and it's actually a thing. Your thoughts go completely dark. And so I was obviously saying to my dad, like, I'm in so much pain. I just want to die. I don't know what to do. And this had been going on, you know, for about six months. And so he decided to take me to the hospital in Spain. And there they, little did I know that they are very, they're not great with mental health uh, or medication. They, they were not, they didn't know anything about benzodiazepines. And so they just thought I was crazy. So they basically decided to section me against my will, which was incredibly terrifying, having already been in this state of terror. And when I got into the psychiatric ward, I was given drugs against my will, uh, antipsychotics, I don't even, some very, very heavy sedatives. And the thing, well, what they say you shouldn't do when you're in benzodiazepine withdrawal is to, is to take any other drugs. They're like, do not take anything else. And so there I was being given all these other drugs and it it made it worse. So what I was experiencing was then heightened to 
well, I didn't even know it was imaginable, to another horrendous level of pain and misery. And when I came out of there, I mean, I, I, I could hardly walk. I, could, I felt like I couldn't talk or move my limbs. Um, it, yeah, it was absolutely crazy. And when did you start to see, uh, when you were in Spain, what happened? How long were you in the hospital for? So I was only in there for three days. And when I came out, that's when, well, my dad didn't know what to do. I was incredibly angry with him in this like psychotic state. Couldn't believe he'd, you know, he basically left me in there. He, he turned off his phone. I couldn't contact anyone. It was incredibly terrifying. And yeah, I just feel like the way that he dealt with it was, yeah, it was, it was dark. Uh, I, but I get that, you know, if you've got a daughter that's in that place, what do you do? But the whole thing was just it was so bad because nobody looked at my records. Nobody saw that I'd been taking this incredibly dangerous drug for six months and just stopped it without tapering. It's because it's not recognized. And that's what needs to change is doctors need to take it really seriously because I mean, no, none of the hospitals had any diagnosis for me that, you know, bipolar, schizophrenic, um, personality disorder. There's all these labels. No one could I had no diagnosis because none of my symptoms matched any like normal you know mental health disorder and at this point had you did were you in a sort of compassmentous state to, to think what is wrong with me did you sort of try and diagnose yourself did you wonder what was wrong with you or did you know it was the drug so or had it already overtaken your mind so much that you were just not the drugs weren't even almost relevant to you anymore so it did get to that point where obviously reality completely left me. But before that point, I was I was really strong in the fact that I knew it was the drug. Because, you know, you're a person, you have instincts, you're taking it, it's you that's going through it. And as I was taking the drug, I knew that something was wrong. And that's why I wanted to stop taking it. Just It's just so unfortunate that I was given such terrible, terrible advice. I mean, I basically cold turkeyed it. And... I did know that it was the drug and the, there is a lot of research online and there's all these groups and I started to go and get help from people in the groups but by then my withdrawal was so severe and it was the not sleeping I think you know if you don't sleep then you just you just deteriorate which is what happened and I mean it is really truly a miracle that I'm still here considering that I didn't sleep for that long and my gosh the psychiatric units and all the drugs I was given and yeah it is wild and you talked about your dad not being able to cope with this. Had you become violent at any points? Had you become physical? Were you were you doing anything to yourself or to any other people or, or things around you? So I was never ever ever violent to other people. Um, it was it wasn't that. It was that I w I wanted to end the suffering. It was so severe, and from what I had heard on these benzo you know, forums and things that really I was in a bad way. And there was no cure, no one, you know, no doctor, no one on the benzo forums could give me anything. And if you're in that place, it's like, wow, this is it, you know. And so I would say to my dad, like, I want to die. I want to die. And I would think about suicide continuously every day. Uh, it was it was awful. And so I get it. You know, I was saying this to my dad. I was praying for euthanasia. I said, is there any way that I can be I can have euthanasia because this isn't going to end. And, you know, I was just in my room in constant in, in this in this state. And my dad was there literally not knowing what to do. 
I guess from his point of view, he didn't know that the hospitals, like the way they treat you is pretty barbaric. So, you know, when you leave your child there, you're thinking they're going to be taken care of. I mean, that was an, that's a whole other section and, you know, subject that psychiatric units are really not safe places for anybody. Um, so, I, you know, I guess he didn't know that. And you, and you didn't attempt suicide at all during this time? So basically in Spain, I, I was saying it a lot because I was having this suicidal ideation. When I look back, it all makes sense. It's like I couldn't stop thinking about death and I would have flashing images of death constantly. Like I just need to die, death. And basically it was when I came out of the psychiatric unit in Spain, for me, that was it. That was the last, it was like, wow, I've just been given all these drugs I'm even worse than I was before. I can't sleep. I had this weird rocking sensation in my body where it felt like the whole earth was like moving. It was the weirdest sensation. Just the scariest shit you can imagine. Like, I don't know. I've never taken acid before, but people liken it to like a terrible acid trip that just never stops. And so if you're in that state, you know, yeah, I did. I did try. I did try. Um, but I'm, but I was so terrified and I also, I'm never, I didn't want to die. You know, the, the root of it is, is like, I didn't want to die. It was just, that I wanted it to end this horrendous suffering. And so I, I never really, when I say try, I mean, like I thought about things I could do and then would then go to do them and be like, I can't do this. Like, fuck, like that's just, just no, you know, never, was never something that I even, like ever visualize myself doing and so yeah it was this weird torturous loop of like oh my god I just want to die how am I going to die or oh, I just want to die how am I going to die like how am I going to end this um for a, a good few months could you did you have the concept of how long it went on for you say a few months now because you're looking mm. back on it but at the time were you aware of how long these things were were happening for or was it just did it just seem like forever so it was really weird because time started to slow down. This is going to sound really strange, but as I got worse and worse and worse and worse and the no sleep and and basically what happened is I ended up going back to the UK because, you know, my dad was like the Spanish system, you know, you're just going to end up in the psychiatric unit here and you'll just be left there and that'll be it. And so he was like, we need to get you back to the UK. So my mum actually came to get me because I was so unstable. I couldn't, there was no way that I could get on a plane by myself. The plane journey, I don't even know how to describe that experience because my nervous system was so warped. It was just, yeah, it was otherworldly going up in a plane and coming back down again. It was like the, I don't even know if we have a mechanism in our brains that tells us that there is time, but it was like that mechanism went and it was like every single minute that went by, I could feel the minute. It almost felt like I was in eternal, it was like eternity. It felt like eternity. It was the weirdest thing ever. It was like being in hell and every single second that goes by, you're just watching the clock and it feels like an hour. It was so strange. So you returned to the UK and mm -hmm. you're, what medications are you taking at the moment? Remind us. So at this point, I'm not on anything because I was given... And how long has it been since you took the last um, 
the drug remi- remind me the name of the drug the lorazepam. Yes, lorazepam so by this point it would have been about two months that i'd been off this drug and they tried to give me drugs in the hospital in spain but they just made me feel a whole lot worse so i you know that i didn't want to take them i didn't take them and so when I got back to the UK, I was just in this incredibly injured, I mean, you call it an injury for medication state. And I just got worse and worse and worse. And I was at my mum's. It was still the lockdown. So we were still locked in. It was very difficult to go and see any doctors. Um, it was a really, really difficult time because I was literally just, my mum's house is quite small. I was just pacing in a circle, screaming and crying all day. And I would just slowly deteriorate more and more and more into complete hallucination until I got to the five stone and not eating or drinking for like two weeks. And that's when I was then sectioned again because they just simply needed to get me into a hospital. And where did you go then? What Which hospital did you go to? So I went to Kingston Hospital. It's called Springfield Oh my gosh, Springfield. It's it's one of the oldest psychiatric units in this country. It's where um, a lot of the kind of famous serial murderers end up. And there I was at Springfield in Ward 2, which now I know is one of the worst wards. And again, you know, it's one of these places. It was like a prison for crazy people. And yeah, I just can't believe that that's allowed. I can't believe that the place even exists. You know, the the staff there were not proper staff. I mean, I don't even know if they were really doctors or nurses, to When be you honest. say not proper staff, what do you mean? Because obviously at this point, you weren't in the best frame of mind. True. So interestingly, so basically, I I still had a, like, I was hallucinating, but then I still remember as it as like the people. I could see them. And they were just all, I don't know how to explain it, but I don't think the whole, the place is funded at all by the, by the government. Like, I think it's very, very low pay. And I got the impression that the people that were helping weren't actually doctors or nurses. They were very, very unprofessional people. And there was a lot of violence going on. And I think in in a place like that, when you have paranoid schizophrenics running around trying to kill people, I think they were they were mainly kind of bodyguards rather than doctors. And so it was just an incredibly scary place to be. There was no offer of like help with, do you want to talk about anything? Um, Again, as I say, I wasn't diagnosed because there was no diagnosis. All they do is just give you loads and loads and loads of medication, which is what they did. They gave me six milligrams of risperidone, which is like a very high amount of antipsychotic. And... 30 milligrams of metazapine and they did try and give me the lorazepam again because I wouldn't stop moving and I was very frantic they 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 are I remember they all lifted me up and like pinned me down on the bed and like injected me on the in the ass so so this that would have been an appropriate time to have given that because it was a a crisis situation exactly it had been caused by that initially yeah exactly exactly and even these psychiatric hospitals would never give that lorazepam drug out like as a continuous treatment it was just for those moments where it looks like somebody's having some sort of seizure and you know they'll they'll give you it and actually ironically of course it didn't have any uh, effect on me because i was in withdrawal from this drug so it didn't make did you make you feel better uh, like did it ease did it feel good to have it 
So interestingly, no. Um, unfortunately, I think my whole system was so damaged by that point that like it was just a mess. Right. And uh, what remind me what month this was from when you first took the drug? So I'm in Springfield. I feel like this is going to be fourth month off the drug. And I was in this hospital for two weeks, given, yeah, this risperidone every night. And interestingly, the psychosis part of what was going on started to change a little bit as I was taking the antipsychotic. <sighs> Um, but again, this Springfield hospital is incredibly unprofessional. And one day they just decided to discharge me with no kind of warning. And I was not okay, but I was very happy to be going home because I wasn't going to be getting better in there. Uh, but it was just a case of like, you know, how do you deal with somebody pacing around your house crying and screaming every day? And nobody knows what these psychiatric units are actually like. So, yeah. Did you not speak to any doctors while you were there or any professionals that sort of tried to assess how you were or were you merely just kept there? So basically you're just kept and you're observed by the by the people like the, well, I'll call them bodyguards. I don't think they were nurses. Um, you know, and I think your behavior is observed, but it's very badly run. I think there's a real big gap between somebody going in who's maybe feeling suicidal to somebody who's a paranoid schizophrenic and is going to actually murder someone. It was like everyone's put into the same space. So, you know, there was this really sweet teenage girl in there who was obviously self-harming and yeah, she, she was in a bad place, but, and then there was a paranoid schizophrenic right next to her running around telling everyone they were going to stab, you know, stab them. I just don't, yeah, it's crazy. Those places are crazy. And did you, interact with the other um patients in there at all so because i was in this place of complete hallucination well like the psychosis and i wasn't able to stop moving and i was in i was in such i don't even know how to explain but just it was like torture being tortured alive so i couldn't really interact i mean a lot of the other housemates tried to attack me because i wouldn't stop moving and they didn't understand why I just I wouldn't stop pacing around. So I got a lot of threats. But again, that's what the staff are there for. So no, I didn't have... I mean, yeah, there was no normal interactions. And how many people were you, were you in there with, do you think? Um, so this would change. When I got in there, it was very, very crowded. I'd say maybe 10 people. And then after the two weeks went by, I think it ended up being like me and two others. So people would kind of get discharged or they get moved to a different ward. There was always this continuous flow of, of people coming in and out. And obviously the things you're saying sound horrendous, but how aware were you of what was happening now looking back? So weirdly, I mean, we were speaking about this a minute ago. I have a really crazy um, memory. Like I remember everything, always have done, just very attention to detail kind of person, kind of like hyper aware. And it's just interesting that I was in this state of psychosis, but I do remember it. I, and I do remember everything that went on. And it's really bizarre because at the time, obviously I, I fully believed that I was in hell and I was being tortured for, I thought that I'd, I'd obviously done really bad things in my life. I died and gone to hell. Uh, and at what point did you, at this point, was it already the, the medic, had you discovered that you the medication that it caused this problem or were you still wondering what it was had so you researched had you discovered it 
at this point when I was in Springfield this was like the point of no return in terms of you know before this I was constantly saying to the nurses have you noticed I've taken this drug for six months it's benzo withdrawal please don't give me any more medication because that wasn't listened to at any point and I was gaslit literally until I was set on fire I ended up I mean this is why I was so so unwell because I'd been plugged with so much stuff so at this point no I, I fully believed that I was dead that I died and I was in hell. And to be honest, I mean, Ward 2 was was hell. <laughs> and when did you start to sort of take control of yourself and start to do your own research and realise that this is what's happened to you and then sort of getting out of this place? So that's actually kind of not how it happened. Like it was... Be because I was aware of this drug. The, yeah. The first time I ever heard of this, there's a... I saw it on the news. There's a doctor, Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's quite mm. a famous writer and speaker. And he was comatosed with this. He got put on the drug. His wife was ill. It was just sleeping, whatever it was. Mm. And he had such a horrendous time like what you're describing. They put him into a coma in order to try and get him off of it. That's the first time I'd heard of it. So when it happened to you, I was then sort of slightly aware that this this had happened to other people in sort of quite a pro high profile situation. Yes. And actually, um, is it St Stevie Nicks from Fleetwood Mac? she actually got hooked on lorazepam as well. And, you know, she speaks about it and how how it was, like, really difficult to come off. I mean, the worst. And a lot of celebrities are given these drugs because, obviously, when you're a celebrity, you go to the doctor and, you know, you're allowed anything. And it's really sad because I think we've lost a lot of amazing artists to benzodiazepines because they're incredibly addictive and they make you suicidal you know they, it's, it's actually a side effect is the su suicidal ideation and when you started to discover you said you discovered some groups on facebook mm. and online did that start to make you feel any better within your in, in your own mind that other people are experiencing this as well and it wasn't perhaps you going crazy or having any sort of uh, men mentally wrong with you it was more of a chemical thing yeah I mean when I found all the all the people I was like oh my god this is a thing and I would show it to my dad and I think what was so shocking for me is that my family for some reason didn't want to believe that it was the drug and I, I just don't know why because there was a lot of research and it was quite clear because it was so severe. Why would your daughter be suddenly acting like completely wild? So for me, there was a real, I think I was quite unlucky with not only the drug being given and all the terrible advice from the doctor, but also how people around me were reacting to what was going on. However, because when you're in benzo withdrawal, it's, it's just this continuous state. There's no cure. So it's also, I, I understand completely, very, it's very difficult for other people to deal with and to know what to do. And yeah. And when you say benzo withdrawal, is that a, a blanket term for all antidepressants? No. So basically a benzodiazepine is like Valium, Lorazepam, Clonazepam, Clonopin. It's, it, it's all these kind of drugs that are meant for crises really you know um an antidepressant is is meant for long term and that's how they're designed so yes antidepressant withdrawal is a very different thing to benzo withdrawal however 
people have also had incredibly difficult times coming off antidepressants, but simply because doctors are saying, oh, you've been on that for 20 years, you can just stop taking that in two weeks. And then there's the, the proper tapering process isn't done. And then this person is left in this horrendous withdrawal state and and blamed, you know, that, oh, it's your it's your uh, mental health coming back. You know, you're you're relapsing when actually it's the side effects of the drug. And when you became aware of this and obviously you're well researched in this topic now, how did you then try to get out of it to where you are now and how long has that taken? So, well, this is it. It was actually just a complete miracle because it was at, at the point of no return. I knew it was the drug. Then I was just left in this constant state of hell and torture, got sectioned in the UK again, came out of that hospital. And because I was still in this horrendous state, I then ended up back in another hospital. Uh, my mum, you know, I was at my mum's. She didn't know what to do. It was unlivable. It was unlivable. And she said to me, you know, if you don't go back into the hospital, I'm going to get the police to come round and get you and, and section you again. So I actually went of my own accord into this psychiatric unit. And it was a really desperate, desperate thing because I just wanted to die. I really wanted to die. I was like, there's no cure for this. I'm just going to go in and out of psychiatric units. My parents, you know, people had deserted me. Friends didn't know what to do. I was just on my own in this hell, hellish state. And... It was six weeks in the in the final psychiatric unit, which was in the Lavender Ward, Wolf, what is it Wolf Rowhampton, Lavender Ward, and basically I came out of there and still pacing around in this horrendous state, no let up, and the only thing that I was doing at this point was sleeping because in the Lavender Ward they had given me a different antipsychotic called catiapine. Uh, again, a very, very high dose and metazapine, the same antidepressant, both of them are very well known for like just basically putting people to sleep. And so actually I would I would be in this horrendous state all day and then I would take the pills at night and I'd manage to sleep. And so I'd been sleeping for about six weeks, but nothing else had changed. It was like hell. I wasn't the Emma. I didn't even think I was Emma. I didn't even know who I was. And this mental health nurse would come round and observe me when I came out of the hospital and she gave me a little a little bottle of lorazepam, the initial devil drug. And I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And at this point, I was talking to a friend, a friend called Hans, who my dad knew, who had a terrible, terrible experience himself, quite kind of serendipitous in the fact that he was connected to my dad. And anyway, he said to me, why don't you take just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of this lorazepam? What have you got to lose? You know, like, what have you got to lose? I was terrified, so I didn't do it straight away. But a couple of weeks later, one morning I got up and I took 0.5 of the lorazepam. And in half an hour, I was back to how I'm talking now. And that is how I got better. So the initial drug that you were given, you took a very small amount of it mm -hmm. and you discovered this on your own. Yeah, through a friend who was also going through a very similar situation and he was the one who was who gave me the advice. He said, just try it. Why not just try it? And at what, where, where in time are we now? So this is like seven months after taking the drug. So what are we in 2021 now? Yes. Okay. 
Um, so it had been a really long time that I'd been off the lorazepam. And as I mentioned before, they had tried to give it to me in the psychiatric units and it had no, I'd had no relief. And God knows, I mean, I just don't know. Don't know what happened to my brain. The whole thing was a mess. But for some reason, taking that 0.5 in that moment stabilized my system with these two other drugs also. So now, of course, in this present moment, I'm still on these three drugs. So you're still on lorazepam now? Yeah. And how much are you taking? So basically, I, through the benzo forums and my friend Hans and surviving antidepressants, not through any doctor, I got the advice to of how to taper off this. And basically, I changed to water. So I dissolve it in water. I use a syringe and I take one milliliter out. So it's th theoretically a speck out every day for 300 days so it's a 300 day water taper um so 300 milliliters of water i had to get my head around it at first but it's just a very gradual slow very obviously very slow way of taking the drug away and a lot of people have way like really good success with this way of tapering and how long have you been doing that now so i've been doing it for 162 days <laughs> And you've essentially, you, you've worked this out on your own through the, through the forums. No doctor yeah. has told, but who's providing you with the medication? So basically, again, very serendipitous. So I took this 0.5 lorazepam, literally came back to life, walked down the stairs at my mum's and said, mum, I'm okay. And she was like, are you joking? <laughs> what? like what and basically my friend Roxy a very good friend of mine um knew a very good psychiatrist and she was so kindly I mean at this point I had no money this has been going for a long time all my savings gone pandemic you know I'm an actor I had nothing she was like I'll pay for you to have a session with Leon and this was actually all like coming at the same time and I had a session with Leon and he basically was like wow you've basically had the most horrendous severe withdrawal off this drug. Now we're gonna taper you off these other drugs, but very slowly. So I, I've had to since pay for the medication privately in order to actually taper off it because the NHS don't want anything to do with the lorazepam. They don't want the responsibility. I actually managed to find a really kind doctor uh, through the NHS who I'm with now. And he said, look, I'm more than happy for you to be doing this privately. I just, I can't have the responsibility because we don't prescribe this drug and I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. So was the only reason you were given this drug was because it was from a private doctor? Yes. Yeah. Are there not, obviously I'm not well versed in medical law or anything like that, but are there not laws against this? So the FDA have a whole thing about benzodiazepines and if you stop them abruptly like they actually have it as a listed thing. Stopping benzodiazepines abruptly can cause severe brain damage for weeks to years of that person's life. So it's out there. I think it was actually this last two years that they really put more, more of a line on it. They were like, you know, no, no more. We, we can't prescribe these. I think in the UK, it's it's definitely more rare. Obviously, America, there's a huge issue over there. On the benzo forums, it's predominantly Americans. Um, but I have met a, quite a few British people in the same situation. I have a friend called David, who's also an actor, writer, incredible human. He's in Valium withdrawal and has been for two years and hasn't been able to work. 
and he's just in his flat with akathasia pacing around hoping that one day he'll he'll be better valium is a drug that we're all we all hear the name of mm. in the media and and maybe people we know but that's not generally not available in the uk is it no it, it's not and it's not something that you'd ever think that you could just go to a doctor for mm. Mm. and how long do you think this will continue for and, and when did you when you said you said to your mum i feel better mm. have you been better since then or have you had times where you've dipped back into sort of a problematic Well, well it's kind of a miracle that somehow, you know, I, I spoke to Mark Horowitz. He's an incredibly um, well-known psychiatrist uh, because I've, I've decided to make a documentary about this. And a friend of mine who is a director came to me because I was very open about this. Obviously, I called a lot of people and I was, you know, posting things on Instagram and Facebook and you know, all my friends were aware of what was going on. And when I came back round, I did a few stories to say, oh my God, I'm having a window of opportunity here. My friend contacted me, said, let's make a documentary. And so through the documentary, we've interviewed some really interesting people. And Mark Horowitz is a psychiatrist who he himself has had a terrible, terrible withdrawal off of metazapine. And I met him in person. And I, at the time, I was having really, really bad side effects because I just tapered one of the medications that I'm on and I said to him you know how do I get off this do I still have a chance because because of the severe brain injury that's what he he says as well when you stop a benzodiazepine you basically have a a brain injury and because of that when I taper the other drugs any little tweak I will get like really weird side effects however I am stable I'm back in reality I I'm myself again. Um, so when I taper these drugs, I just get the weirdest, very unsettling side effects. And I mean, that's why I'm, I have to do it so slowly and I have to do it one by one. So when the lorazepam's done, I'll then do the gatiapine and then I'll do the metazapine. And, you know, this could take like four or five years realistically to get off. And Obviously, you, you may not know this, but are there any long-lasting effects physically or mentally that y- you feel that you've, you're experiencing? Well, I mean, I don't even know how I'm really dealing with it. I think because I just want to live my life and I, don't, I never wanted this to happen to me. And I think before this, my personality, as you know, quite a f- free spirit and I just want to live, my, live a full, colourful life. And so I still have that, like you know, personality. And so even though I'm in this situation where I'm tapering and maybe I won't be able to drive for a week or maybe I feel like I'm having a stroke or I'm being electrocuted or I have pain through my body or just all this crazy stuff. But I just, I don't know. I I, I don't feel, obviously I'm traumatized by what happened, but I'm also incredibly grateful not to be in chemical terror and to be at a place where I can function and it's it's incredibly unknown. Like I'm very, very scared what will happen to me when I come off the benzo and then try to taper the others. Is that going to be impossible because of what's happened? So it, it's very much like I live in, in an uncertain, it's, it's very uncertain, but at the same time, what choice do I have? Yeah, I mean, you do approach this with a degree of sort of sense of humor as well. You seem, yeah. You seem quite... Oh, you seem normal as I've known you before. Mm. When you say you've had the trauma from it, how does that affect you? What do you, 
what do you think about when you when you say trauma so it's more like I just like don't want I just don't want this <laughs> like I just want to be off these drugs I want to throw them in the bin I don't want to have to spend the next six years of my life tapering like that is I mean, also, I lost all of my savings because I spent them all on therapy for about two years or just trying to sort this out. So it's, it's I mean, to be fair, it, that's fine. That's not even the money thing. I don't care. It, it's also the family. Like, I've had to kind of piece back, you know, my family and my relationships. And I don't know whether they'll ever be the same again, just, just in terms of what happened was so severe of course I love my family and I am we are getting to a better place with each other since this has been going on but the whole thing was like everything broke down um but I think all I'm doing is just trying to move forward and do the things that I love in life and just try and ignore the fact that I have six years of tapering ahead of me <laughs> and, and and a sense of humor yeah I mean I think <laughs> you need that in in this situation um and anyone who's going through this now or who's been offered this drugs and hasn't taken them or has taken them and or has gone through it, what, what would you sort of like to share with them, do you think? Gosh, it's really sad because through this, um, especially I've, I've got an Instagram called Beating the Benzo and I've been posting things on there. And it's really sad because the amount and it's actually more women women contacting me, young women. And it's actually happened a lot in the pandemic where you know, people are getting anxiety, they go to the doctor, the doctor gives them this drug. You can imagine, obviously, in the pandemic, this this would have happened way more. And they've had this horrendous uh, side effect. They're called psychotic. They're having a psychotic break because of the pandemic. So it's really sad because I have come across many people in my same situation. And to be honest, there is no answer. And the fact that I stabilized on 0.5 lorazepam seven months after taking it. Doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, it's it's sad because I get people asking me, what do I do? I, ju I don't know what you do. I think time, that's, that's all there is, is time. And are you not involved in any medical observations about this? Because obviously this is happening to you now still. You're still going through this. You know, it's important to remember that. Are there, are there not doctors who are interested to take your blood work and look at what you're doing and your behavior and how you feel about these things? So it's just really sad because my NHS doctor now is really lovely. And I went in there in person. As soon as I stabilized, I changed doctors because the other one was useless. And I went in there because I wanted him to see me as a normal person. And obviously he saw like I'd been in three psychiatric units. I'd had all this medication and he was like, wow, you know, he actually believed me. And he was like, this is terrible. This is why we don't give these drugs out. And I just think because it's, it's just like an underworld. Like Jordan Peterson, who you mentioned before, calls it the silent epidemic. It's something that's not spoken about. It's very easy for doctors to call you crazy and blame you. Doctors can get away with a lot of stuff. Um, and there isn't any interest, unfortunately. I think it's coming out from people like me speaking out, people like Mark Horowitz, who's actually a psychiatrist, trying to really show there's a there's a huge gap of what the doctors know about this medication and what the medication actually does and how severe the withdrawal is and also what can be done for somebody who is in withdrawal so yeah like my current doctor he wants he's I've actually got to go and get my blood taken next week because 
Gatiapine, I've managed to taper that from 400 milligrams to 100 milligram. So that's quite a lot. Over how long? Um, Over four months. And and what is that meant to do? So Gatiapine is an antipsychotic at below 250 milligrams it's it's a huge sleeping pill and it's said to maybe have some antidepressant elements to it but it's actually one of the drugs that affects maybe like i don't know hundreds of receptors in your brain and it's it's basically for paranoid schizophrenics or people who will go into a psychosis out of nowhere and then they're given this drug and they'll come back out and it it really makes you sleep And looking back before any of this happened to you, at the state you are now, are you in the state of which you were before, other than the knowledge that you have and and the memory and the trauma from it, but in a physical sense and just day-to-day sense, do you feel like you normally did without any change? So, yeah, that's Are you experiencing any side effects with the drugs you're on now or any side effects from the drugs that you were on? Yes, so every day um, I feel really weird stuff going on in my body very strange some some weeks I'll, I'll have less um, my eyesight's really affected so everything is really bright so if you just imagine like an overexposed photo that's what my eyesight's like I have to wear sunglasses pretty much all the time so um, sensitivity to that yeah and, it, and a pain but it's like everything is so bright like there's a spotlight on is and that it's, happening right now I mean, yeah 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 the like light from the window, the, yeah. that is incredibly bright yeah. like it's like yeah really really white also ironically this is terrible but the tinnitus that i went in for initially so benzos actually cause tinnitus and so do antidepressants and antipsychotics is a very common thing especially if you're in withdrawal so my tinnitus is like on an on a new scale but i mean i think it's perspective like i've got used to it it's certainly not as bad as the chemical terror that i experienced that i was experiencing so yeah, I've got used to the ringing in my ears, but as for bodily sensations, they change rapidly, um, especially because I am tapering this benzodiazepine. I never know how how I'm going to feel or what I'm going to experience. At the moment, it's mainly like I get these weird, if I'm doing too much, like overstimulation, if I'm in a really crowded place, I feel like I can feel like I'm having some sort of stroke. So I feel like I can't move my my body my limbs just for like a period of time and then all to go away um, and that seems to be caused by overstimulation which actually Jordan Peterson talks about because he's very injured by a similar I think it was clonazepam or cl- clonopin that he was on um, he he can't really work I mean he says that he can do about two to three hours of work every day um, which is incredibly sad and right now as we sit here, is there anything you can observe that you're feeling now? Um, Other than the sensitivity to the light? Dizziness. So sometimes, especially when I'm doing something, obviously, that requires stimulation. So obviously, we're talking, we're doing a podcast. Um, like, I'll just get sudden moments where I feel like I'm falling into the floor or, or the whole earth has moved. I don't know if you've ever had that sensation before where you're like falling in your sleep. Um, I get that a lot like that's quite common but your ability to function day-to-day tasks and operate as normal has has been restored pretty much so yeah it's like my thoughts are normal and my personality and me as Emma has come back and I mean that is wild because I completely lost myself I don't have the akathasia and the chemical terror and as anyone can imagine you know 
no one can function in that state. So I just pray that as I taper off this, I will not experience any chemical terror. And I can, what I try and do is even when I do have bad side effects, I just keep trying to distract through it, just do something, do do anything. Um, yeah, and one day be free of all of these things. And you talk about the documentary being made. When will that be available for people to watch? So um, we've basically done most of it. The lovely Lady Jess, who um, I actually met her partner at Burning Man, and that's how I know them. It's all very nice, little serendipitous. Um, they have basically just had a baby. And she's obviously, you know, she's with the babe. And they're now in Australia. So when they come back, we're going to start filming again next year. And hopefully just get it done. So at some point next year, it'll be out. And if people want to get in contact with you to ask you about this or sort of discuss these issues, you say you have an Instagram page or? Yes. So it is beating the benzo. I am posting like updates on there. I'll post this on there. And also my YouTube channel, which I'll which will be linked onto the Instagram. Okay, well. Yeah. Thanks very much, Emma. It's been a long, a long journey for you, obviously, and it's still continuing. Mm-hmm. Um, and thanks for talking to me today. Is there anything you want to add just before we finish? Just thank you, Ollie. Um, you're very welcome. It's you're like the perfect person to interview me. <laughs> uh, I don't know. have an Instagram page, so um, you can't find me anywhere. I'm afraid. <laughs> no, do you not? No, I don't. Oh, we'll cut this bit. We'll cut this bit. No, no, um, no! Don't cut this bit. My, my podcast does crossing the line tales yeah. from the entertainment industry, which is a completely different subject matter. You can find me on there if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but Emma, really appreciate it. It's been interesting to hear. I'm glad you're much better than you were. Thank God. And good luck for the future. Thanks, Holly. 